Okay, take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back with me to uh, Romans chapter 8. We're um, um, ready to move on after a couple of weeks in verse 28. Let me read you verses 29 and 30, which will be uh, our subject for discussion for the next few weeks. Um, they are, in, in your English translations, they are two sentences. I think you know that in the Greek New Testament there is no punctuation. So that period that you find at the end of verse 29 was not there in the Greek New Testament. Um, and, and in one sense, I want to suggest to you that this is one long sentence, one long Pauline sentence that is uh, jam-packed full of all kinds of stuff. But let me read it to you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, Rich, rich couple of verses containing a whole lot of stuff that we need to take a look at. Um, Let me start like this. in our, in our previous weeks in the fall, we, I think there was eight of them that we looked at Romans 8.28. And um, Romans 8.28 is, maybe you didn't know about it, but I think, you, I think you probably tasted a bit of it. Romans 8.28 is intensely practical. Um, it's practical in the sense that we all suffer. We all experience pain. Maybe you're not right now, it's just not your turn. But um, we, we all know what painful experiences that we've had in our lives. So um, any help that we can get that will help us cope in the midst of our pain, we appreciate that. And if, and if somebody can help me uh, um, get through my pain and, and cope with my uh, difficult circumstances, that is intensely practical stuff. Um, Help me unravel some of this, and man, I'm going to walk out of here a happy man or a happy woman. Now we come to two verses that, in a sense, what we're entering in these two verses is intensely theological. And the 21st century is not all that interested in theology. Um, for lots of reasons, I guess. I mean, we, we want instant gratification, for one. But we've also been told that theology is, you know, it's, it's very divisive and very, you know, uh, very dry and very um, um, whatever. Uh, you know, I don't care what your position on baptism is. All I want is some help and um, how, just some information as to how you hack it on Monday morning. Just forget all that theology stuff. Just give me some, you know, some help for Monday morning. Well, guys, um, one of our, my heroes is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, you know the name, at least many of you do. But Spurgeon said that all of life is an illustration of Bible doctrine, all of life. So what I want to do is take a few minutes and just, and just try to support that position. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is, you may have walked away from those eight weeks in Romans 8.28 thinking that that's really practical and this is theological and I'd rather have the practical. What I'm suggesting to you guys is that there is nothing, there is nothing more practical 
than a contribution to your whole understanding of theology. Now, I think you understand that theology is the study of God, and that's what I'm saying. There's nothing more practical. There's nothing that you need more um, than insights into the God who made you and redeemed you in Christ Jesus. You know, when, when, uh, when I preach around here on something that's uh, for the family or um, uh, midlife crisis, I mean, you know, we sell lots of tapes, but you, 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 you know, do something on, um, on some kind of theological position, and, you know, you don't sell too many because people... They're not particularly interested in that. What they want is some help and, you know, that stuff. And I'm saying to you, uh, with some degree of um, fervor, there's nothing more practical. Nothing is more practical than um, contributions to your whole understanding of theology. Now, let me tell you why I say that. There, there are three things that I want you to look at. And by the way, I, just wanted, I hope you brought your Bible. You're going to need it for the next few weeks because we're going to thumb all the way around this thing. Um, and we're going to do some of that tonight. But I want to start tonight. I, all I'm trying to do right now is support that, that uh, thesis and that premise and that being that there's nothing more practical um, than, than your theological system. Let me, let me show you why, a couple of three reasons why I say that. Let me start in John chapter 17. So if you can find that real quick. John chapter 17, verse 3. Um, Jesus says, this is contained in the high priestly prayer, and uh, Jesus says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, guys, um, you've heard me say this before, but uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, is not the Lord's Prayer. Um, that prayer is the prayer that he taught us to pray. The disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray. And he says, all right, our, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, that, you, know, you know, that prayer that we pray is not the one that he prayed. This is the one he prayed. John 17 is called the high priestly prayer. This is, uh, this is a part of the Olivet Discourse. And he is himself praying this. And he says... And this is eternal life, to know God, to know you. That's eternal life. Folks, I want to suggest to you that the biggest problem that you and I have is our ignorance of God. It is knowledge of God that will help you later, but I'm saying to you with great conviction, it will help you now. Not to prepare you for the sweet by and by. It will do that. I'm saying there is nothing more foundational to your coping with reality than your knowledge of God. Eternal life is to know Him. That's one of the reasons that I say that theology is immensely practical. Here's my second reason. Folks, I think you know this, but if nobody's reminded you, let me be the first. Ideas have consequences. My favorite illustration of that, that point is the phenomenon of the suicide bomber in our day. You know, did you see the picture of that lady with that thing strapped on her? And I think, what is the matter with you, lady? What is, did you see that? I mean, that thing strapped on her and she said, I'm just sorry my fuse didn't light. Or something. My, my, my mechanism didn't fire off. And I, my goodness, you'd have been bits and pieces on a piece of, of, on the side of a wall. 
but I'm just sorry. Well, how can you, how can you come to that? How can 19 men fly their planes into the Pentagon? It's because of things that they believe. Ideas have consequences. The things that you hold to be dear are things that guide your life, folks. My belief system is the most important aspect of my life because it determines my behavior. I behave based on what I believe. My responses are dictated by my belief system. And so, very honestly, to try and get you to change behavior, the first thing that any preacher has to address is the things that you believe that happen to be lies. If That is, if we've got any lies in our system, and most of us do, but ideas have consequences. So, to affect your ideas is to affect your behavior. So there's nothing more practical than theological dialogue. If I can affect the way that you think of God, my friends, it will be the greatest contribution to the change in your life that I could possibly make. Because ideas have consequences. Now, here's my third reason for saying that there is nothing more practical than your theological understandings. I want you to look at this with me if you can, if you've got a Bible. Um, if you don't own one, sell your shoes. Um, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, guys, um, if you've never read, I mean, it's a long psalm, and it'll take you 12 to 15 minutes to read it, but, you know, spend your devotion tomorrow in Psalm 119. Read the glories of this thing. This is, this is a, it's, it's a psalm dedicated to the benefits and, um, uh, of God's Word in, in a Christian's life. It's a wonderful psalm, but uh, he says a lot of different things in there, and, and I wish we could have, but one of these days we will. But, um, but I just want you to see this. I'm in Psalm 119, verse 97. Uh, I, I tell you what, before I, before I read that, I just want you to look at, this is an aside, but uh, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. <laughs> when have you ever heard people talk like that? You heard anybody talk like that lately? Oh, I'm really, I, it just grieves me to see people disobey God's word. Well, here the psalmist says, you know, streams of tears flow from my eyes because people dishonor your law. Anyway, but that's not even the point. Uh, the point is over here in verse 97 and through 100. Let me read to you. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, guys, um, I said this, I don't know when it was, but I remember saying it recently. Um, life is complex. You know, you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom, I think. But, but here's my contribution to the definition. Wisdom is competence in the face of the complex realities of life. Wisdom is a competence that you and I possess in the face of some pretty complex situations. Now, I think we can at least agree upon that. Now, my point is this. How is it that that wisdom is gotten? Well, notice what the psalmist says. He says, listen, I, I know more of my teachers. I know more than the aged. I'm wiser than my enemies because I know your word. 
if, if that competence in the face of complexity is of interest to you, I can tell you how to get it. I can tell you the route to wisdom. It is to know what God has said and what He's like. Guys, you face all kinds of complexity, just like me, don't you? I mean, there's this, uh, you know, I, I often snicker because this is kind of, kind of sad, but, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, these big holidays, you know what they do, don't you, besides fatten us up some? What, what holidays do is that they expose the fracture and the, and the cracks and the crevices in all of our family system. <laughs> we start getting together with people we don't like and we're mad at and, you know, the, I haven't spoken to her in years and, you know, what the holidays do is force, I mean, all of the, all of the, the, uh, the masks get pulled off while we have to deal with my sister Judy, you know. Um, I, it's, it's, it's complex. Well, the, the point is, life is complex. You know, the greatest depression in the year is around the holidays. You didn't know that, did you? Well, you know, that's why. Because we can't deal with our family complexities. Well, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody in the family that possesses a bit of wisdom? To somehow unravel a bit of this familial complexity? I can tell you how to get it. It's knowledge of this. So, gang, I, I say with the with the utmost conviction, there is nothing more practical. You know, I, I, um, I, I really have taken this ten minutes or so, somewhat of as an explanation, but almost as an apology, because I, you know. Uh, I, like every other preacher, would love to sit up here week after week after week and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and give you something so, so something that you define is so practical that you can skip out of here and just have the best time. And when you get in the car, you can say nice things about me. You know, I, 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 I want to be loved just like the rest of you want to be loved. But gang, you know, I, I think I've told you this before that I was uh, involved in a situation one time where they had a college retreat. The college retreat went on, a, on their Florida trip, and the subject of the Florida trip was how to um, how to <laughs> it was how to how to master some new software in their computer. You take your and this is a church sponsored trip how to how to function your Hewlett Packard computer, and I think what has it come to this that the people of God think that that they're, what they think about God is of no consequence, but if they can really run their families, and now that's something I really want to listen to. Could you do something like that, brother? Well, yes, I can. And I try to do that, you know, fairly frequently. In fact, if you might recall, I did from Mother's Day all the way to the summer and something that, you know. But folks, I, I hope that I can convince you of this. There is nothing, nothing that you need more you don't even need to know how to raise your kids as much as you need to know everything there is to know about your God. I, I would love to send you out of here week after week, you know, just, ooh, wasn't that wonderful? But it ain't going to happen. It, at least it ain't going to happen immediately. But hear me. I think this stuff that you're going to listen to or look at the, in Romans 8, 2930 is as important as anything that you can possibly hear. Not because I'm teaching it, but because it's, it's, it's so rich with insight to God.
but you may not get from this some sort of immediate traction for your soul. What you may get is over time, some of this will seep into your consciousness and change your perspective on your job or on, on your future or on your marriage. It might change your perspective on, um, on your place in the larger scheme of things. Gosh, it might even, it might give you insight to yourself. And I want to suggest to you that that is intensely practical. Now, having said all that, I want you to know that my approach is going to be as user-friendly as I can possibly make it. But that's going to mean that we're going to have to move very slowly. Um, and I must, which is not really fun for me, but be very thoughtful, very deliberate in, uh, in, uh, about what I will include and what I want, even my choice of words I've sought to be deliberate over. Um, I can tell you that we will not exhaust these two verses. Uh, there's a lot about these two verses that I will not say, and I will not say it because of my love for you. Uh, the better place to say some of these things that will go unsaid will be my systematics class. If you'd like to hear some of those things said, then you need to sign up for the systematics class. And I'll give you a little insight in case you're interested. Uh, it's going to be done again in January, the 21st and the 28th, two Saturdays in, in January. So some of the things that won't get said here will get said there. Um, for some people, the words in verses 29 and 30 and elsewhere are, are they're fighting words. Uh, they're words that spawn anger, which always interests me. Why, why is it that they do? I, I, I'm not real sure why, but I can tell you this. Um, Martin Luther and Erasmus, they fought over these words. I mean, they said nasty things to each other over these words, and, and people do that today. But I, I think one of the reasons that people get so angry about this, or can get angry about this, is that a lot's at stake on, based on these words, folks. There's a lot at stake. Um, I'll tell you what's at stake. Your whole view of God and your whole view of self. Other than that, not much is at stake. What you think of God and what you think of yourself is wrapped up in these words and others like them. So um, uh, some of this is, is going to stir you because it's going to force you to adjust your view of self or God. Or you can, can steadfastly hold on to whatever else it is that you'd like to hold on to, I guess. Okay. Uh, all that by way of introduction, and um, uh, looking at the text, I want you to notice that it opens with a conjunction, a conjunction that attaches it to the verse before, uh, that precedes it, which is verse 28. I'm suggesting to you guys that verses 29 and 30 are an exposition of the last clause of verse 28, which is something I mentioned last week, that is, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul unfolds that last phrase there, uh, or clause there, uh, in these next two verses, verses 29 and, and 30. Uh, but what he is seeking to do, he continues to, to seek to establish in the minds of his hearers 
the safety that can be enjoyed by believers. Now, remember, guys, we started in Romans 8 a long time ago. But the opening verse of, of Romans 8 is, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is seeking to establish a certain level of confidence on the, on the part of his hearers that they are safe. Now, um, he, as I am suggesting, the, the, uh, he unfolds this last clause of verse 28 according to his purpose, which I would suggest to you is, this, is, the, is the apex. That it is the crowning concept, concept in this entire letter. That is, according to his purpose. God has a purpose. Now, um, what may seem to be uh, a, a meaningless jumble of, um, of events is not meaningless at all. God's purpose is to have a whole bunch of sons and daughters who are conformed to the image of Christ. And to that end, God does five things to produce his purpose, and those five things are mentioned for you in these two verses. We'll get to them later, probably next week. Now, now gang, trust me, you will never fully comprehend everything that's contained in these two verses. Uh, but what counts here is not the amount that you can understand. The, 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 it would be a wonderful thing if we could continue to move in a direction of a greater and greater understanding and a greater grasp of who God is and what he's done. I am suggesting to you that God has a purpose his purpose is being unfolded in the, uh, under five different headings, five different words that you find in this text. But guys, I, I just want to suggest to you that you start this search of these five words much the same way Moses started his search when he was told to get his shoes off. Because guys, this is some pretty holy territory that you're about to traverse. Um, we, are, we are being invited into, we're being ushered into some eternal counsels of God. Consequently, it is going to stretch all of our ability to grasp. Ultimately, listen to me, ultimately the proof of a right approach and a right understanding to these truths contained in these two verses the proof that you understand them aright is that you find in them the greatest urge towards holy living. That's what the text, for those whom he for he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. No one rightly understands these truths without being humbled by them. If they don't humble you, you don't understand them. Because what they're supposed to do, an understanding and a grasp of these rich things, is supposed to drive you to a greater desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. If that doesn't happen, you don't understand them. Got that? In addition to that, don't forget that Paul's purpose here in this section is purely pastoral. It is not academic. 
He's not, this, his purpose is not pedagogical. He's not trying to teach you something uh, for the sake of tucking it away in your vast theological system. He is trying to comfort people that, he's, that he loves, that they are safe. And he is telling them of this grand purpose of God in the hopes that it will foster a greater level of confidence, a greater level of um, enjoyment of their safety in Christ Jesus. I want to point out that he doesn't argue over this. He's not trying to, and nor will I. Um, these truths are designed to bring comfort to God's people. That's what they're designed for. And uh, the, the result that that, I mean, the, the proof that that has taken place is we find a greater appetite for holy things. The goal, gang, in understanding all this is assurance. And the focus of these verses is on the end. Notice how they conclude. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's trying to communicate to his hearers that they that glorification will ultimately be theirs. So, rest in that. Now, guys, the last phrase of verse 28 is a declaration that God has a definitive plan and purpose with respect to the salvation of His people. This book, from front to back, is a description of that plan. Uh, it is a book that includes all kinds of illustration as to how this plan is unfolding over the course of history. Let me show you a couple of those, which is, to me, um, can, I don't know if this sums things up for you, but it sums things up for me. If you can find the book of Joshua real quick. Joshua chapter 21. I'll read you a couple of verses out of Joshua. Joshua 21. And then Joshua 23. I'm suggesting that, I mean, Romans 8:28 says that God has a plan. This plan is unfolding, and this book is a, is a description, is an illustration of how that plan is unfolding across history. Now, that's what I'm trying to demonstrate at this point. Look with me at Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. Joshua says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, guys, guys, God can only make promises that are reliable, dependable, <laughs> things on which you can fix your eternity if he is in charge of the unfolding of history. Read with me another one. Uh, Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. Joshua says, I am now, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, guys, remember that's Joshua speaking, and do you remember, what are some of the promises that he's referring to there? Well, uh, Moses comes to uh, uh, Israel and says, listen, I'm going to bring all you guys out, and I'm going to put you in your own promised land, and I'm going to drive out all the enemies. My goodness, all those promises have come to pass, not one word has failed. 
Now, what I'm suggesting, what I'm saying to you is that all of the promises that you find elsewhere are just as reliable as those promises. What you find in the life of Israel, what you find in the life of, of Joshua, is simply the, these, this plan of God unfolding um, to produce the desired result that God has. Folks, the prophecies that are contained in this book, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and uh, all those other things, don't have a chance. If God does not have a plan and a purpose, the reason that you can bank on the prophetic utterances of this book is because God is in charge of the history that is unfolding to bring about the fulfillment of those prophetic utterances. Now, gang, Romans 8.28 is not the only place where God is described as having a plan or a purpose. Uh, let, let, let me look at it. Let's look at a couple of them. Um, well, let me just one. If you can find the book of Ephesians real quick, there is nothing more profound than these words in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this. I'm in Ephesians 1 verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Then verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 11, in him, this, this, is, this is such a, <laughs> a profound statement. Verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is pretty, um, that is pretty inclusive there, folks. God is um, uh, uh, unfolding a purpose that is according to the counsel of His will. <laughs> now, one other statement that I, I just wanted you to see. This is in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verse 9. It says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That is, all I'm trying to establish in your minds is that this, Romans 8 is not the only place that alludes to, refers to the purpose that God has. Now, I want you to notice also in Romans 8, verses 20, 29 and 30, I want you to notice whose purpose this is, or whose purpose is in view. Uh, this purpose that is being uh, uh, described or discussed is the purpose of God the Father. Now, guys, I'm about to say something, and I want to say it very carefully because it borders on the irreverent. And I hope you will not uh, attach to these words. I'm simply saying to you that what is unfold, unfolding before you in Romans chapter 8 is the purpose and the plan of God the Father. Here's my irreverent statement, and I don't mean by any sense to try and denigrate the second person of the Trinity. I hope you know me better than that. But in one sense, the work of Jesus Christ is a means to an end. 
Now, I hope that doesn't in any way subtract from its beauty, its value. But do you understand that Christ Jesus is simply the effector? He is the carrier-outer of the plan that His Father has. By the way, He Himself acknowledges that. He says, my meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father. Why did I come? I came to do the meat and the drink of my Father. I came to do His will. He is a... Gosh, I don't want to go any further because it's... it's um, I don't want to... I, I don't want to in any way smudge your eyes over the beauty of what Christ has accomplished. But do you understand that the intent of His work is to bring about something that the Father has planned? Now, let me say again. You know what that plan is? That plan is to have a whole lot of sons and daughters of God who are all conformed to the image of Christ. That's the plan. Now, of that plan, nothing has ever failed. Nothing can fail. There's a wonderful statement, uh, if you want to just write this down and look at it later, but in, in Job 42... When Job has finally learned all the lessons he needs to learn, he says this in verse 2, this is 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Did you hear that? No purpose of yours can be thwarted. <laughs> do you know that? Job knew that. Do you know that? Do you understand that the plans and purposes of God are not going to be thwarted and um, I think my, 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 my major concern is, that, is, is this, that you and I, when we finally get there, we won't get there tonight, we won't get there next week, because we're off next week, but we'll try to get there the next week. When we approach these terms like predestined, the P word, when we approach these words like predestined, foreknown, called, you must never forget that the plans and the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. To understand them aright, do not start with your... Emotional needs. Start with the character of God. Start there. Work out from there. And you might come to something good. We gotta, we gotta hurry, uh, I got about three minutes, but I, if you're still in the book of Ephesians, I want you to see something and then we'll quit. For the night. <laughs> um, I'm back in Ephesians 1. Listen to this. I'm just reading you some isolated verses out of Ephesians 1. Um, uh, he predestined us according to adoption, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. 
Do you know what the meaning of all that is, ladies and gentlemen? Do you catch the drift? The, per, the, the meaning of all that is simply this. That the accomplishment of salvation in the lives of people is not designed for anything other than to bring glory to God. You are not the end of it all. You and I are a means to an end. And the end is the establishment and the declaration and the display of the glorious nature and character of the God who found a way to save sinners like me and you. This is not about you! It's about God. And we have bought in in a culture that has made us the center of the world and we, we want the world to orbit around us and then we try to figure out some kind of theological position with us in the center of it. That ain't it! This is not about us. This plan and purpose is not to save you. This plan and this purpose is to bring glory to God. That's what it's supposed to do. Maria, a couple more and I'm finished. This is in still, I'm still in Romans, I'm still in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that verse 10, guys. So that through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus. Do you know what he's up to? He's brought us into being. So that we can be a testimony to His glory, a testimony to His wisdom, a testimony to His greatness. We we are a we are a, a a display cabinet of all of the beauties and the excellencies of the God who found a way to save us. That's all we exist for, folks. And I'm oh so glad it's not about us because we have um, plenty of opportunity (laughs) to uh, get all pumped up about who we are. But when it comes to this display of the great wisdom and the glories of God, understand we are a means to that end that the beauties and the excellencies of God might be seen. Let's start there. And then maybe we can come up with some decent understandings of these glorious truths. Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that there is something a lot grander and a lot more glorious than, than we happen to be. We thank you that we are related to you by faith. We thank you that our souls are safe. We thank you that this 
safety as a result of the fixed determination of your plan and that no word, no promise that you ever made has ever gone awry. That we are a people who can bank on you fulfilling your promises to the end that you will receive maximum glory from the church. We commit ourselves to that, Father. Let me do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody.